Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the show Q with Tom Power. Uh, on the show, we talk to all kinds of uh, actors, writers, painters. I mean, big names you might have heard of. Like we had James L. Brooks talking about The Simpsons, Jada Pinkett Smith talking about Tupac. And on our show, artists go a little deeper than they might go elsewhere. I mean, the guys from Blue Rodeo kind of said that. We only talk about our relationship when we come on this show. <laughs> and we've done it damagingly and we've done it positively. <laughs> Listen to Q with Tom Power wherever you get your podcasts. We'd invite spoken word artists in. We'd invite painters in. We invite people that do maquettes and sculptures to give these young people these small artistic kind of experiences and ways in which that they could reimagine their identity and teach them a level of visual acuity. Just basically say, what kind of representations do you see of your body in popular culture? Is that the sum total of your lives? This is Arts Educators Save the World, where successful artists and their mentors talk about how arts education transformed their lives. Hello, love. Welcome to Arts Educators Save the World, UK edition. Today on our show, we're going to do something a little bit different. Coming to you from across the pond, we're going to share a conversation between two peers, that is, artists from different mediums who have been friends for a long time and whose work inspires each other to change the way we think about the arts and learning. This is a unique form of mentorship, as we'll hear in their conversation, that work that they produce inspires each other to become better educators, to become better artists, and to become better humans. And since their conversation didn't work like a traditional artist-mentor conversation, I'm going to give you a tiny bit of background about each of them so that you can follow the story that they're telling us about their relationship with one another. On our show today, we have Faisal Abdullah, who is an artist and a professor right here with me at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is a sculptor, he is a photographer, he is a barber, and he uses a range of media in the visual arts to express himself and to work with young people. We also have on our show actor Fraser James, who, among many other projects, is the star of Baby Father, a BBC TV show that aired from 2001 to 2002 and focused on four Black men struggling with the issues of fatherhood, love, and friendship. You'll hear more about Baby Father and why that's so important to Faisal and Fraser's relationship. And Fraser is also the director of Underexposed Arts, which is a portrait series by photographer Franklin Rogers featuring Black British actors that has been shown in museums across the UK and in public communities all around London. The project aims to give young people access to the images and voices of Black artists as inspirations for their own lives. You'll also hear more about underexposed arts throughout their conversation. And with that, cheerio and enjoy Faisal and Frasier. like to start by pretending y'all are the hosts instead of me. And so the way I want to do that is, Faisal, can you please introduce our guest on Arts Educators Save the World today, Fraser James? Born in Camden. And any of you who know Camden, it's um, one of the hotbeds of creativity. 
and it brings forward a certain kind of rounded individual. Fraser trained at Guildhall, one of the top drama schools. Fraser has featured in numerous films, dramas, more important, Terminator. Fraser was in the seminal piece, Yardi. He was also in a very important seminal drama called Baby Father and numerous other accolades. Other than that, he's a great, great visionary, um, has a wonderful understanding of the arts and how the arts is imbricated in, in all of our lives and a stellar human being. Thank you. That was great. Unprepared. <laughs> I didn't see a single note. Absolutely. Now, Fraser, please introduce the guest on today's podcast, Faisal Abdullah. Well, it's also my pleasure to introduce you all to uh, this week's guest, Faisal Abdullah, who I have known for many years. If I were to describe Faisal in one word, it would be polymath. Let me expand. If you were to meet Faisal cutting someone's hair in a barbershop, you'd think, oh, he's a barber. But you'd be wrong because if you question him a bit further, you find out that he actually owns the barbershop, you know? And then on another day, if you were to be at an opening of an art show and you bumped into Faisal, you say, hey, man, what are you doing here? And he'd say, this is my art show. And you'd think, what? If you know him as a barber, how can you be an artist? And then you find out that he's a multidisciplinary artist. He has, across many different platforms, how Faisal can deliver a beautiful art. And then on, on another day, you might bump into him, I don't know, at the airport or, or, or a train station or something. You say, where are you up to, man? He's like, oh, I'm just going over to the States because I'm, I'm teaching. I'm a professor over there. You know, so it's like this man is, to me, one of the iconic polymaths in my lifetime. You know, I, I find that his understanding of art across multiple disciplines, his understanding of life, you know, you can have a conversation with Faisal about everyday things, or you can have a deep, deep level conversation with him about what next for a project that we're working on, and you're going to get bulletproof answers. So yeah, that's Faisal Abdullah. Thank you, Fraser. It's nice to hear yourself through somebody else's voice, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Tell me the story of the first time you worked together. And it's okay if it's not the same story. It's also okay if one of you starts and the other one picks it up. I, I think I can start it because, as Fraser alluded to earlier, I have a barbershop in London, and I set that up with the proceeds of selling work when I just left art school. We get so many clients in. And we had one guy that came in all the time, lovely, quiet, humble human being by the name of Ulrich Riley. And Ulrich Riley is a director. It turned out, as I was cutting his hair, I said, I'd seen all of the stuff that he had done on BBC TV and he'd won loads of awards. And he said he was currently working on Baby Father. And while I was cutting his hair, I said, Ulrich, why is it all the black British actors look extremely rough? They're always ungroomed. <laughs> Think about the American actors. Look how groomed they are. And I could see him sitting there and like looking into the mirror and his mind was like drifting. He says, yeah, you got a point. And I even told him some of the productions that he had done. The actors looked a little bit on the rough side. <laughs> i tell you what he said. I'm going to see if I can get you on set for Baby Father. I was like, yeah, I, I could do that. He said, there'll be an early morning call. And I had no idea what he was talking about. Apparently in drama, they are this call time. So everybody turns up and sits around the whole day. <laughs> so I put my, my case, my stuff in my Beetle. I left my house at 3.30 and drove over to East London. And I think they were surprised that this barber was actually on time. 
Because I'm assuming they probably had issues with barbers in the past, hence the reasons why some of our well-known actors were slightly ungroomed. And I remember uh, going into the mobile unit, and there was a fully-fledged three chairs, mirrors, lights, and they said I could set up in the corner. And they said, here are the list of the actors. And I knew all of them by their name, by their reputation. I've seen them all in various iterations. They would say that they would come in one by one. And I think the first one I did was David, David Haywood. The second one was Fraser. And that's the first time I met Fraser at that point. Yes. So there I was, walked into the makeup truck. Usually it would be one of the makeup girls that would give you a shrimp of some description. On this day, I come to find there's an actual barber in the trailer. So I'm like, what the hell's going on here? You know, but I'm super grateful because I know that I'm going to get a decent trim for a change. (laughs) And bear in mind, I mean, I didn't have much hair at the time. (laughs) I had a bit more than I have now, but it was just a pleasure to know that for a change that I was going to get a really crisp trim. And so as you do, we began talking and we're talking about a lot of different subjects and I'm not sure how it came up, but then Faisal kind of let me know that he was an artist. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm an artist. So I said, well, how? I mean, so what, you, you're a barber, you own a barber's, but you are also an artist. And I just couldn't relate the two things, you know? And so that was really the first trigger for me in terms of my engagement with Faisal, because I was so impressed by that combination of things. And so when I met Faisal and he told me he was an artist as well, as well as a barber, I was just blown away by that. Yeah, that's how we met. And the interesting thing with that was that Ulrich at the time knew I was an artist. And he asked me if they could use one of my works in Baby Father. So there's a scene, I think it's in the apartment that Fraser was in. Yeah. And one of my large photographs was on the wall. And I was explaining to Fraser, yeah, I'm an artist. And actually, one of my works is actually in the drama. That's right. That's right. And because I hadn't seen it yet, I just said it's in the show. And it's only when it was aired. I don't know what episode it was. And I think there's a scene where he walks up the stairs. And there it is on the wall, one of my One of the Sound pieces. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, there it is on the wall. So yeah, so there was a twofold relationship between my involvement with Ulrich Riley, then Baby Father, and then meeting Fraser. The complexities and the politics of being an actor is the same as the politics of me being an artist. The very same piece that was in Baby Father was the same piece that was in my MA show or MFA show in the US that my professor said I wasn't allowed to show. But that work was what launched my career. Faisal, can you talk about the piece a little? What the piece was that they didn't want you to show and why it required so much strength and agency on your part to get them to include it? Yeah, because I think even now in, in contemporary culture, there's a lot of talk about kind of agency. There's a lot of talk about having voice. Those things have been going on for a long time. You know, I think Baby Father was a very, very important moment, but people haven't recognized it yet. When they go back into the archives, when it was made, and the the things that it was discussing, they'll understand it. In 1991, I made a piece called I Want to Kill Sam, and it was referenced in the black body in popular culture. And it was about trying finding novel ways and other ways to reclaim it. So these were friends of mine that were musicians, and I got them to pose in the Royal College of Arts photo studios, and they're holding weapons. They're holding, like, guns and machetes, but it's all kind of, it's all very playful. One of the people from the media in the Royal College, wanted the image to advertise the university show. But the head of the school said, whoever this artist or student is that has made this piece, number one, not only will they not represent the show, they will not show their work in their entirety. And then my professors called me in and they said, there's been some pushback about your show. i never forget what he said. He said, 
because we know you're not like that. <laughs> I was like, what? What do you mean I'm not like that? So they felt that the work was somehow critiquing whiteness and it was supporting gun violence and it was purporting to chaos. And I said to them, but hold on a second. One of the main images is this guy pointing a gun straight at the viewer. Surely you've seen James Bond. Surely you've seen Terminator. Surely you've seen First Blood. Surely you've seen all of these other characters acting and playing out in a certain kind of way. And what you're trying to say is that when a white person holds a gun, it's entertainment and it's playful and it's a myriad of readings. When a black person holds a weapon, it's only read in one way. This person is an aggressor. So there was a lot of backers and forwards and them not actually even talking about the artistic value and quality of the work, but purely judging the work through me. Because I'm pretty sure, you know, if it was a white artist making the same work, it'd be like, oh, this is interesting work because, you know, you're critiquing, you know, they would have approached the work and critiqued the work very differently. It was a, a watershed moment for me as a, a young person. It was a watershed moment as a short, sharp intro into what my potential life could be like, whether or not I could handle the fire, whether or not I would walk away from the art world at that very, very young age. Because I always said to people that, you know, when I was 14, I went to the National Portrait Gallery and I saw images of my body in subservient positions, and I wrote a promissory note to myself. And I said that I would take up the profession of being an artist just for the sole purpose of indexing different ways of seeing self. And I'm not interested in making a lot of money or being in front of magazines. I just want to make sure that I leave an index, a trace of different ways of seeing my body. Mm. And that's why for me, I want to cause sound was really important. And funnily enough, that's the piece that's going to be shown at Momoka here in September in my solo show here. So you'll see it. As you were describing that set of experiences, Faisal, I was thinking or wondering, Fraser, how that set of ideas has influenced your work. And hopefully we'll talk more about underexposed arts, but I can see direct connections from what Faisal is describing to the sort of mission and vision that you have for working with young people talk a little bit about that, how those concepts have influenced your own career as an artist. We are talking about Baby Father earlier on. I, I finished filming it and I was at home one morning and this radio show was on. It was a phone-in and they said uh, there was this violence that took place in the Black community the, the previous night, some knife crime. And the premise of the show was the reason why there's violence in the Black community and low achievement for Black school leavers was because a lack of black role models in our community. And I just finished Baby Father, where four black male leads, director, writer, sound recordist, makeup artist, barber, you know what I mean? There's so many role models for me in that show. And so I was pumping away at the telephone pad to get through and say, listen, I don't agree with that premise. I just had a, a moment where I said, right, I'm going to do an exhibition and I'm going to call it underexposed because we are underexposed. I'm going to just push positive representation out there, just beautiful images of people from the black community and just suggest that maybe here's a role model for you and there might be another one and there might be another one and see how they respond to it. So that's really how underexposed started. At the time it was underexposed many years ago and subsequently became underexposed arts. I tell you straight, I walked into the Arts Council at the same time and pitched the idea to them. And the guy said to me, OK, so you want to do 30 portraits of black British actors and put them up on hoardings in the public realm? I said, 
That's precisely it. And he said, so what? I said, what do you mean, so what? He said, so what? What's the, you know, what's the big deal about that? I said, are you kidding me? He said, no, I'm not kidding you. I said, you, you need to explain yourself. So I said, well, when was the last time you walked into a, a newsagent and saw a black face on the front cover of a magazine? And this is like 2007, 2008, where we just finished Baby Father, lead black show. We couldn't get on the front cover of Radio Times or the TV Times. So our representation at that time on magazines, in commercials, out there in the public was not anywhere close to what it is now. That's kind of what I, I made him understand. And thankfully, perhaps not him, but other people at the Arts Council understood and we made it happen. Finally, we agreed on putting them on the windows in contravision. So seven of these portraits in huge, huge portrait windows of this building. And I was looking up at the building thinking, right, so how are we going to keep these portraits clean? How are we going to keep them so they're aesthetically pleasing for years to come in the way that the others were? This black guy walked past and he said, I see you. I said, okay, I see you too. And he said, no, man, I see you, I see you. I said, well, you know, what do you mean? He said, you're one of the guys, you're one of the artists that were on these portraits here for so many years. And I said, yeah, man. And he said, listen, what's the deal? So, so I explained to him, we're bringing them back and we're going to put a selection on the windows. And he was elated by it. And he said, listen, man, we never knew who put these portraits here. It was just one day, there was nothing. And the next day, they were all there. But I can tell you, I used to walk to school and from school every day past those portraits. And however I was feeling, they made me walk tall. Mm. So thank you so much for doing it. That, I still feel it, gave me goosebumps on the back of my neck. It's just one of the many examples of how we know when this guy said, so what, in that room at the Arts Council? Well, this is just one of the many examples of many people who have been inspired by those portraits. What Fraser doesn't understand is the reason why he's able to sit at those tables and to have those conversations slightly easier is because people feel a sense of familiarization with you through your craft. What Fraser's doing, it's so aligned with my practice and my thinking. That's why I think it was really key to just have his voice and have him share his experiences of what it means to be a practitioner and, and, and be also within the, the visual arts as well. And Faisal, I appreciate your highlighting Frazier's <laughs> humbleness. You are also being quite humble, yeah. I think, in this. <laughs> a, a direct connection that I hear, and I'm hoping you'll talk a little bit about it, is the work you've done locally here in Madison with Fauhaus. Sure. And the echoes of this work with incarcerated teens here in Dane County. Yeah. And Fraser, I don't know how familiar you are with the Fauhaus project, but Faisal, can you talk a little bit about Fauhaus and what you aim to accomplish? You know, I hear direct echoes of what Fraser is saying. Sure. And maybe you could say a little bit about that. Yeah. It definitely aligns with everything Fraser's experienced growing up as a young person and having incredible elders being in my life and being the kind of guide. When I think about the piece that I've just made here, the, the stone monument, it's called Blueprint. But the way in which the piece is advertised, it has a number three on top of the U. So people see the word Blueprint and they see U to the power of three. What, what's that about? And the reason why it says Blueprint with a power of three because you can spell the word Ubuntu from the word Blueprint. And the word Ubuntu means a person is a person through other people. What I was trying to think about was 
young people, in some ways, they're a bit like limestone when it comes out of the ground, soft, malleable. And then over time, it hardens. As we grow as human beings, we harden. And I always think young people at a certain point in their lives make some interesting choices. Some of those choices are not advised. And the ones that have a lack of advice around them generally make the kind of wrong decisions. But it doesn't mean that you write them off. For me, the Fowl House Project developed after working in London for many years with young people. In London, we call them wrong-uns. So these kids are a right wrong-un. They generally have them working in the arts. And I said, well, when am I going to work with the young and gifted kids as well? Because they don't get any play neither. So you always have to kind of do something bad to have an artistic experience with an artist or an actor or something. And then I began to realize that as I was being in Madison, the real liberal city was incarcerating people that look like me higher than anywhere in the United States of America. So I'm like, how does that work? And that's when I felt this sense of purpose, that I felt that I could convene some kind of experience with young people weekly that would run at the same time as the university semester. At the end of every semester, we do some kind of exhibition. There was, in the very beginning, there was a lack of support for it. And I just said, look, come to my studio. I have the space. They come to my studio. I set the tables up. And we would invite spoken word artists in. We'd invite painters in. We invite people that do maquettes and sculptures to give these young people these small artistic kind of experiences and ways in which that they could reimagine their identity through writing, through spoken word, through performance and movement and teach them a level of visual acuity. So what I mean by that, just basically say, what kind of representations do you see of your body in popular culture? And they would think about it. And I said, okay, name me seven movies, just as a joke for these young kids. And when they named me the seven movies, I said, what do you notice about those movies? Oh, they're famous movies. I said, no. What do you notice about the content of those movies? They're only about one thing. They're only about race and violence. Is that the sum total of your lives? So I said, you need to understand the information that's been imparted to you, the creative information in movies, on billboards, in magazines, the way things have been edited. It's all part of a way of them making you think about your own body in a certain way because image controls self-esteem. And if you're able to participate in crafting that image, then you can have a different self-esteem. So every time you pick up a magazine, every time you open up a book cover, every time you have a discussion about something, be mindful and conscious that that stuff that you're being fed was being crafted by somebody else. And generally, somebody that doesn't look like you. Then I would say to them, look at some of the movies by Tyler Perry, for example. I said, they're not the greatest movies with content, but I said, look at the way he lights black skin. He lights black skin so beautifully. It actually, it's like when I see actors in Tyler Perry's films and I see the actor, I recognize them. When I see some actors in certain films, when they light them, I'm like, I didn't know the person was that complexion mm. because they light the scene for the white actor. They don't light it for the black actor. Sometimes you see a scene, you don't see one of the actors because they can only light it for one person <laughs> in that scene. So even something, that, those simple things that young people can be made aware of, it's about just giving these young people some of the tools that they can help navigate the world so they're just really switched on about things that they're looking at when they go into a, a newsagent or Walgreens, they look at the magazine stand, 
they understand the codes. They understand why certain things are the way they are. So for me, it's about trying to get to those young minds early to try to let them understand the power of their mind, the greatness of their history, and how they can participate in trying to contribute to the canon. Okay, hi everyone. Alec here. I was not invited across the pond, but I've been listening. And as always, we're going to step away again. Now I'm going to ask Professor Erica a little something about the show. In your book, Erica, How the Arts Can Save Education, you describe collaboration as a form of learning. And I'm curious whether you can connect ideas about collaboration to this conversation that we're having with Faisal and Fraser. You know, it's so interesting to hear two people who have worked together, but often work independently, create direct echoes of the work one of them produces in one context and apply directly to another context. In learning theory speak, we call that collaboration through the air. I didn't make that term up. Other learning researchers have talked about this, which is the idea that When a person innovates an idea and other creators witness that innovation, they often pick the innovation up and use it in their own way toward their own creative ends. So if you're making a flashlight out of found objects and you see someone figure out how to create a switch button, all of a sudden your flashlight might have a switch button, even though when you started making it, that's not how you intended to create it. I heard collaboration through the air all over the place in the way Faisal and Fraser talk about particularly how they think about the relationship between representation and identity. Underexposed Arts is all about how photographic representations of successful artists can inspire young people to think about their identities. And Faisal's Fauhaus project is all about how young people themselves can create the kinds of artistic pieces that allow them to explore their own identities through arts practice. To me, this form of mentorship, so maybe I'm going to coin a new term right now, we're going to call it mentorship through the air, which reflects how Faisal's work as a teaching artist is inspired by Fraser's work as a director of an arts project, and Fraser's work as the director of an arts project is inspired by Faisal's work as a teaching artist. And I can't wait for you all to hear some more about how this mentorship through the air works in their friendship and their arts practice. To complete the circle of collaboration through the air, you can hear from Faisal how the young people in the Fauhaus project are learning from one another about innovations in representation and identity through working side by side, each to create their own pieces, but using similar tools. Is collaboration through the air why ants and a bug's life came out at the same time? Could be, could be. You'd have to ask the creators of those two films But there was obviously something in the air that gave rise to two, I would say, pretty funny... Insect-based. movies at the same time. Yeah, it could also be one just stole the other. Okay, let's go back to the show. (laughs) 
If you're a fan of Real Housewives, Summer House, Vanderpump Rules, or any other shows on Bravo, you know that being a Bravo fan is basically a full-time job. On the Mention It All podcast, presented by Betches Media, I, Dylan Hafer, am keeping you up to date on all things Bravo. Plus, you'll get to hear some of your favorite Bravo celebrities and media personalities mention it all about what happens on and off camera. Search for Mention It All on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Faisal, I'd love to talk to you about the Fauhaus Project at the Public Library, which was a series of photographic self-portraits that hung in the windows of the downtown branch of the Madison Public Library mm-hmm. at 20 feet tall? Yeah, yeah. Fraser, yeah. you were talking about having the underexposed portraits live as representations for young people in a public space These are portraits that the young people have done of themselves Mm -hmm. that are, I would argue, aiming to achieve the same mission, but from these kind of mirrored perspectives that, Frazier, you're saying, here are representations of role models that you as a young person, a young Black person who aims to be an artist, can draw from for thinking about your life. And here's Faisal echoing that artistically by saying to these young people, and you can make your own portraits. And then those portraits become representations that are publicly shared. For me, that's a really remarkable way that your artistic practices are informing one another, even if it's not a direct, Fraser came over, you know, and met with the young people, and this is what we decided to do. But for me, it has this very authentic artistic echo. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What was really important for that project was these young kids that are generally rendered invisible became visible because their bodies were like 20 feet tall. And people felt, is that the minute they see scale, something rendered being important on the side of a building, are they famous? Are they making money? So all of a sudden, the person is recognizable. So they became recognizable to their peers and their teachers who felt that these kids were slightly off the mark. And they said, well, how did you qualified to have your picture up there on that scale. And what it did, it reset their hard drive. That, yeah, they've been a bit naughty, but now having this image out there, they themselves are becoming a role model. People are going out there, snapping it on their phone. And even though it was a temporary exhibition, no one can take it back that they were on the side of this building for like three or four weeks. They did change their behavior accordingly. And I think there was huge improvements in their schoolwork, And just during the time that they spent with us within the class, that they find it hard to believe in adults when they say they're going to do something for them because adults generally let them down or not a part of their life. And when they saw me come in, this stranger from London with a funny accent, and he says he's going to do this thing with them. And then seven weeks later, I'm bringing in a sample of what's going to be on the side of the wall. And they're like, oh, you can see them running around holding their mouth like this. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) And then the great thing was then the day of the installation. And we came and the team turned up and they were putting these things up and they were completely in love with it. And then their parents came. And that was the most important thing. The parents came and the social workers came who were working with these young kids. And even in one of the shows, one of the judges came. What the judges do, the judge says, okay, you're going to go to that youth center for six weeks or you're going to go to prison. And the judge went, this is the work that you, you guys are doing? And then the young kids would be talking to the, the judge and the kids would call me over, Faisal, come over here. 
this sense of pride, this sense of kind of ownership, this sense of transformation was very key. That I hope will continue within the Firehouse project moving forward because it makes a huge difference using arts to help kids navigate the world and help them kind of navigate themselves. It's a really important thing. What's crucial about that is that as they see themselves or see someone that looks like themselves and they can recognize their personal identity, they're actually recognizing, oh, wow, that's me. That's my identity, you know. That's so big and and that space is is huge and they recognize that and it builds their confidence. Absolutely. And it encourages aspiration. And that's in its simplest form is what we're trying to do at Underexposed Arts and that's the work that Faisal's doing, which is echoing it. As Frank says, our legacy is in the lives we change. We know that having those portraits set out there in the public realm for not close to 10 years before they were moved to a different location, so many different people walked past it. People like John Boyega, who used to live there. John Boyega, who's an international actor in Star Wars. Letitia Wright, Shidera Egaru, Damson Idris. These are guys that, from that era, grew up around those portraits and saw all these actors alongside their gems of knowledge, these gems which they were offered, that the artists offered us those gems and said, this is what you know, gives me confidence. This is what I think can inspire you. And alongside this beautiful portrait that Frank took, you had these gems of knowledge. You might walk past it for a week and not notice it. And then one day you'll stop and you'll look at it. And then the next day you'll look at another one. And over a period of time, they're embedding themselves in your psyche and who you are and who you want to be, who you aspire to be. And then that shift, whether you want to be an actor with this new collection of portraits, we have actors, we have musicians, we have a lawyer, we have a Formula One trackside engineer. We've got Faisal. <laughs> Is Faisal going to have a portrait in the new round? Faisal has a portrait, which I can share with you guys. Yes, please. It's absolutely amazing. In fact, if you don't mind, Erica, I'd love to ask Faisal about his gem of knowledge because... Yes, please. I'd love it, Faisal, if you could explain the rationale behind the gem of knowledge that you offered. You have to remind me which one it was. Okay. (laughs) He has so many gems of knowledge. I always say to young people is that there are three states of being. So the state is solid, liquid, gas. And for me, the three states of being defined by being present. And sometimes... We're never present. We're always living in the future. I want to do this tomorrow. I want to do this next year. And I said, when I look at a piece of work, I look at an artwork, I'm in solid state. I'm standing on the ground. I'm looking at the work. I know what day of the week it is. And I know where I need to be in the next half an hour. And then as I advance into the artist's aesthetic, vision, dream, I go into liquid. So I start to move around. The artist is almost like touching my arm and whispering in my ear. And I can smell their odor and I can feel their temperature. So I'm in liquid state. So I'm moving in between the realm of, from what I understand, to almost going to that state where you're getting slightly sleepy, getting dreamy. And then if the work is really effective, they pull me right inside of the work. I'm in the work and I'm in gas. So when I'm in gas, I have no concept of where I am. I have no concept where I'm standing. I have no idea what day of the week it is. I'm totally in the zone or the realm or the universe of the artist. And I'm floating in the state of nothingness. And I think understanding those three states of being for me is the only way that I can convey the effectiveness of somebody's craft. But the magic is being able to come back down. 
to go from gas to liquid to solid. Mm. And then when you're back in solid state, you have no idea where you were. So I think understanding those states of being is crucial. And it allows more play. The more we can play, that gives us more joy. And I think it, it allows us to push off some of those good hormones that can only help us to heal. Mm. So I think it's really important. What I found revelatory about your description, when I got back into the studio and I, I went through your tape and I listened to it and I sat back and I said, he's talking about being in the moment. Yeah, He's talking about when, as an actor, when I'm in the moment, which is something I strive to be. Sometimes on a film set where we've got a mic, a boom mic, that close to your head. And I'm always amazed by the fact that I never have in all my years noticed that boom mic. I've got a film crew around me, this camera that's doing this thing, these lights that are around you, the, you know, the, the boom mic, but you don't engage with it because you're trying to engage with that person that you're listening to and trying to respond to. And if you can get yourself into a place where you're so in the zone that you forget all of the things that are around you, that you're just engaging with that moment of listening and responding, then you're being in the moment. And that's when the magic happens. It's that space. You know, talk about becoming solid again. You become solid when they shout cut. Yeah. Mm. Do you know what I mean? We'll talk about that, Fuzzle, because we want to do a talk about that. <laughs> There's something in this space, and we want to do a talk about how the young minds can find their decisive moment, can find their solid liquid gas, their being in the moment, yeah. and how that can impact their future, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm wondering if either of you have a question for each other. Anything that this conversation has surfaced for you, things that you're curious about? So my question will be a phrase, and I may have said this before, is that if you're going to speak to the younger Fraser, <laughs> what would you just say to your younger self? I would say to myself, trust your first thought in response to the question that you ask yourself. Okay. Because invariably, my first instinct is the correct one. Sometimes you can have a first instinct and then you ask someone else and they sway you off that first instinct. Yeah. They give you a different route. They give you a different path. They give you different questions to think about, which takes you off that path. And so you think, well, okay, yeah, that seems fair enough. Or, you know, sometimes you may think that um, having asked yourself the question and got your first response to the answer, that you're not satisfied with that first response because your ego wants another response. Mm -hmm. Your ego wants to hear something different. Yeah. So you'll continue pursuing it, and then your ego gives you another response. You yeah, I prefer that response. <laughs> I prefer that one. Yeah. So I'm going to go down that path. I've got a question for you, and it's related to your role as a trustee on Underexposed Arts, I have to say. And it's a question I've been meaning to ask you for some time. So forgive me for asking you in this moment. <laughs> Happy to provide. So here it is. How do you see the work that we do crossing over internationally? Do you see whether there's a potential for that? And if so, how, I suppose, you know? I think sometimes the hardest decision for somebody to make is if they're ahead of the curve because they don't see anybody else doing it. The reason why I became involved in Underexposed because, one, we're creating beauty. Two, there was a sense of purpose and the reason why these things are coming into existence. And I think, three, they're going to transform people's lives 100%. 
this platform is really, really crucial. It's kind of based on my respect for, you know, Erica as a scholar and how Erica believes that the arts can transform lives and learning and education. And then when we're thinking about just my own body being here in the U.S., everywhere I go and I order something, somebody says, oh, you're not from here. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm not. <laughs> and then the second thing they say, you sound like that guy. And I was like, who? Oh, I know they're going to say Idris Elba. <laughs> now, they don't say I sound like Franklin Rogers. They don't say I sound like Keith Piper. They don't mention any artists in my canon. Mm. They reference actors. Mm. So why I think it's so important with what you do is that they're already going to know these people already. That's the first thing. But the second thing, they're not going to know that they're Brits. Because a lot of the actors that they have seen who are acting here, they are assuming an American accent in some of the performances, and they assume that they're not British. So I think the first thing, you're going to really educate a lot of people. I think the second thing is, as I said, it's going to provide an excellent platform for art. Let's take the subjects out of it. The way you're able to introduce Frank's work to a global audience. Because not only are we looking at people trying to work them out and there's gems of knowledge, but they're beautiful things. So there are beautiful objects that people are, are going to find to be in solid state to take them to liquid. Because they're beautiful things immediately, so they're going to garner their attention. They're going to hold them. They're going to turn them to liquid. And through their curiosity, they're going to turn to gas. They're going to be in the work. Being a part of this movement is crucial. And I could never, ever not want to be a part of it. And to make sure that the artist is always looked after, to make sure their rights and entitlements are, are right. And if I don't feel right about something, I'll let you know. But I think it's really important that if you want to see change, you need to be a part of it. I think it's a wonderful moment for the visual arts. It's a wonderful moment for educating and re-educating. And it's a wonderful moment to have these voices in a framework or in a template curated in a particular way that tells a beautiful story. And you told the first one already in the first iteration. And you had Idris Elba, you had yourself, you had all the artists from one tier in that. And the next iteration, I think, is going to be incredible. And it's going to be a great learning tool for a lot of people. I think that the gems of knowledge transcend one particular country, you know, because that's the beauty of these images that we've got the beautiful images. We've also got these gems of knowledge that the artists have offered to inspire other people or to let them understand well, what triggers you, what gets you going. Full agree. This is my passion, how arts practices transform young people's lives through teaching and learning and design and experience. So however I can lend my voice to this process, I am, I'm here for it. Oh, I had such a blast talking to these two. I got a chance to talk to an old friend, and I made a new friend. And, fun fact, both of them told me, this was their very first podcast. Neither of them had ever been a guest on a podcast before. Here at Arts Educators Save the World, we can say that we introduced the podcast world to Faisal Abdullah and to Fraser James. We found the last two people on Earth who had yet to be guests on a podcast. We're here to fix problems. We're also here, however, to ask questions. And Erica, I've got one for you right now, and I'm looking for three solid answers for you. Are you ready? 
I'm excited. All right, it's the end of the year, which means it's time for new technologies, new phones, and I'd like to know what are three new features on a phone you would like to see that would make your life a little easier? Mm-hmm. Time travel. <laughs> One. The ability to push a button that would teleport me immediately to another place. Two. A pre-populated speech button so that I could successfully talk to my family members as much as they would like without me having to actually talk to them and make up new conversations. Three things. I do think the time travel is actually coming out on the new watch. And maybe for the addition of this that my mom hears, yeah. we can cut out the third one that I just <laughs> said. So just for my mom, okay. let's cut off the end of that podcast and go right into yeah. the three ways that our listeners can get involved with our show. Okay, this is for the Nancy-only edition. If you have questions, comments, or if you know someone who would make a great guest on our show, please do write to us at contact at artseducatorspodcast.com. One. Or you can use our handy-dandy interview guide to talk to your own mentor about the ways they've changed your life through the arts. You could find that at artseducatorspodcast.com slash contact. Two. And. If you have recorded something just so awesome, you want it to be shared with the universe, please do send us your favorite two-minute clip of your interview, and we will do our best to include it in the show. To learn more about that, you can also go to artseducatorspodcast.com slash contact. Three things. Onward together. Arts Educators Save the World is hosted by Erica Rosenfeld-Halverson and produced and co-hosted by me, Alec Lev. Our executive producer is Doug Matica, and our audio producer is Justin Asher. We are also executive produced by the fantastic group at Story Pirate Studios, Lee Overtree, Benjamin Salka, and Amy Fiore. Original music is by Dan Lipton, and our artwork is by Lyra Evans. Check out our website, designed by Cole Locasio, at www.artseducatorspodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Arts Educators. Yes, somehow that wasn't taken yet. And on Instagram at Arts Educators Podcast. Write to us with your questions and comments at contact at artseducatorspodcast.com. And wherever you're listening, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. It really helps the show. We are proud to be sponsored in part by the Wallace Foundation, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and the Gibb Faculty Fellowship. Arts Educators Save the World was created by Erica Rosenfeld-Halverson and Alec Lett. If you're a fan of Real Housewives, Summer House, Vanderpump Rules, or any other shows on Bravo, you know that being a Bravo fan is basically a full-time job. On the Mention It All podcast, presented by Betches Media, I, Dylan Hafer, am keeping you up to date on all things Bravo. Plus, you'll get to hear some of your favorite Bravo celebrities and media personalities mention it all about what happens on and off camera. Search for Mention It All on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.